0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. So I, I don't do it so often, but um, it's in my heart uh, this week to to um, to do a question and answer kind of thing. And um, you know, I'm not saying I have the answer, and I don't know that you even have the question. <laughs> but just in case, we'll just we'll just talk, and we'll see how it goes. And and if we if we run out, then then I'll just tell you some thoughts. But um. I, I I really, you see, you know, one of the things I heard from Reb Shlomo one time is the difference between a rabbi and a Rebbe. Okay? He says, a rabbi tells you some information that you didn't know before, a Rebbe connects you to the deepest part of yourself. So, whenever I've ever spoken Torah or whatever it is, I, I've, I've always had it in mind that that the that the point is not just to communicate information. Because if you want information, you can read National Geographic. You know what I mean? The Torah, we say, Torah Chayim. The Torah of life. It's something that is about being alive, about applying to your life and everything like that. So in order to do that, that means it's got to be in the mind, it's got to be in the heart, it's got to be applied, it's got to make sense. You've got to understand that all of this information is 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 opening your eyes about the world that we 're living in and about reality and about your purpose in life and everything like that so so any torah any torah that 's good torah or successfully communicated torah is something that just is becomes part of your entire life as opposed to a a fun fact right because we have enough fun facts you know what, what do we need more trivia for you know so so anyway um, so all of that's to say that, you know, the, the name of this talk is, it's called, um, officially it's, ta- it's called Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. I don't, I don't know if you knew that that was the title of this talk, but um, so I've, I've always tried to be practical. So, so anyway, if, if any of you have any questions that, 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 that have a, you know, a, a toalus, as we say in Hebrew, but you know, like a bottom line, I'll try, go ahead. I uh, uh, this is the date brings down a second. I was just curious. Is, is that uh, um, is that something consistent with your understanding of those calendar days? That's something that uh, yeah. a rabbi did show me. Mm. Okay. So, okay. Good. So, so basically, there are there. I'll give you the timeline. Okay. On Shavuos, which is the holiday of receiving the Torah. Um, that we celebrate on Vav Sivan, the sixth day of the month of Sivan, which we calculate is 50 days after Pesach. Okay? Um, And we begin the counting on the second day of Pesach. So so Moshe Rabbeinu gets the Torah, and uh, 40 days later is the 17th of Tammuz, and that's the day when Hashem says to Moshe that the, your, you know, the Jewish people are worshipping the golden calf. And so Moshe smashes the tablets, the luchos, on the 17th of Tammuz. So that's one 40-day period. Okay, For the next 40 days, Moshe Rabbeinu prays that the Jewish people should be forgiven. That takes us to the end of Av. And then at the end of that forty-day period, the second forty-day period, Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, "Come up and get the second luchos." So Moshe goes and he starts the second, the third forty-day period now begins on the first day of Elul. Now, that forty-day period ends on Yom Kippur when Moshe Rabbeinu comes down with the with with the second tablets, signaling the forgiveness of the. Sin of the golden calf. Okay? So, there's a lot that can be said about that. But the main thing is you have three 40-day periods. The first 40-day period is the receiving of the Torah, ending with the sin of the golden calf and the breaking of the tablets. The second 40-day period is the prayer for forgiveness. The third 40-day period begins Rosh Chodesh Elul and ends Anyom Kippur, with us receiving the second tablets. There's a lot to be said about that. I'll just give you a couple of quick thoughts. One is something that I noticed. And and by the way, there's even an opinion that the middle period, the middle 40-day period, there's kind of a disagreement about this. But there is an opinion that the middle 40-day period, that Moshe Rabbeinu was also on Mount Sinai. Okay? Some say he wasn't. Some say he was. But what is 40 plus 40 plus 40? hundred and twenty. How many years did Moshe Rabbeinu live? A hundred twenty. Isn't that interesting? not that interesting? That every day of Mount Sinai was a year of his life. Now, let's look at it another way. Who knows how old Moshe Rabbeinu was when, when he was by the burning bush When he got his mission to take the Jews out of Egypt. Who knows how old Moshe Rabbeinu was? He was 80 years old. So so if you say, go with me for a moment. If you say that every day at Mount Sinai was like a year of his life. That means his entire life, all 120 years, correlated with all 120 days on Mount Sinai, In other words, his entire life was about the receiving of the Torah. But what about the 80 years before he had his mission? That means that in retrospect, because of the way he lived his latter 40 years, the first 80 years were in preparation for the last 40 years, which means that the first 80 years in retrospect became all about the Torah also. I'll put it another way. You see, all of us agree. I've I've never found anyone who will disagree with this statement. All of us agree that each of us is the sum total of everything we've experienced up until this moment. Right? You are the embodiment of your collective experience. Okay? So, the sages have this unbelievable teaching that if you return to Hashem out of love, all of your past actions that were mistakes turn into mitzvahs. How is that? Is that some kind of hocus pocus or magic trick or what? what why? It's because maybe you needed to go through those experiences to become the upright person you are today. And if you have become an upright person today, that means that even though those past experiences may have been things that you weren't supposed to do, since they led you to being an upright person now, in retrospect, you were heading in the right direction, even though at the time you were heading in the wrong direction. So Moshe Rabbeinu, 80 years old, by the way... Please don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying that Moshe Rabbeinu led a unjust or improper life the first 80 years of his life. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. God forbid. But was the Moshe Rabbeinu between ages birth and 80? The Moshe Rabbeinu between 80 and 120? No way. I mean, that Moshe Rabbeinu is like, you know, he's got a staff and he's splitting seas and, you know, he's not eating for 40 days in a row, or drinking multiple times, I mean, he's like an angel. He's refined himself to being an absolute angel, right? It says in the Tehillim, that, you know, I think it's number 90 or 91, Lokim, which, okay, you can translate as a man of God, but another translation is, you know, the angel. You know, that's written by Moshe. So, um, anyway. The bottom line is, and I want to say one more thought, but the bottom line is, is that is that all hundred and twenty days at Mount Sinai correlate with all hundred and twenty years that he lived. And so in retrospect, the first 80 years of his life get transformed into all days that were they were like he was at Mount Sinai, because that's what he became later in life. And so all that was leading up to that, so it's like he was completely perfected. Now we know that Moshe Rabbeinu was born on the 7th of Adar, Zion Adar, and he left this world, Zion Adar, which shows that his life was completely righteous. Which again, the 120 days and the 120 years at Mount Sinai. His life was all Torah, even before the giving of the Torah, because he led his later years on the level of complete Torah. Okay, one more thought. What is the correlation between the idea that the second tablets, the second luchos come down on Yom Kippur, and that these, in other words, we receive the second luchos on Yom Kippur, and it's the day of forgiveness. So, that's just a deeper level in that connection. Okay, so now listen. If a person doesn't know how to behave, they are always going to make mistakes. So let me give you an example. Imagine, you know, you see this in relationships a lot, in friendships a lot, where one person is doing something wrong, but they don't have insight into what it is that they're doing wrong. So let's say someone is always bothering you or hurting you in the same way, but they themselves don't have insight into what they're doing wrong. Okay, so after a certain number of times they can apologize, but the apology isn't going to be that meaningful anymore because you know that they're going to do it again because they don't even know what it is that they're doing wrong. So they say, I'm sorry, but. okay. as my father said many, many times, without insight, there can be no change. Without insight, there can be no change. Okay, so what's the correlation between receiving the Torah and it being a day of forgiveness? Now, let's say someone has made this mistake and has bothered you, whatever it is, five times, right? And now, you know, you don't know whether you want to forgive them the sixth time or not, because it's like too much already. But the sixth time, they say, you know what it is? I've been doing this all this time and now I have insight and I'm not going to do this anymore. Now when you give the forgiveness that time, that's going to be a full forgiveness because you know that the person has insight and that God willing, they're not going to do it again. Right? Okay. We weren't able to hold on to the first tablets. But the second tablets we did hold on to. So that's the connection between receiving the second tablets and Yom Kippur. Because now we really understood what it is we need to do in life. And once you understand really what it is that you need to do in life, then God says, okay, that's going to be a day of forgiveness. Because if you have insight, if you have the second luchos, if you have that understanding that you're going to hold on to, then I know that you know. And once I know that you know, then you're asking forgiveness as a proper apology, as a proper tshuva, as a proper return. And now you're fully forgiven. Okay, go ahead.
1: Okay, um, everything you just said was exactly what I wanted to talk about.
0: All right, the next question. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> it's <fun. laughs>
1: no, but um, it's my life yeah. up to 17 years old. I lived a life that didn't always go towards Torah. I did a lot of things that were against Torah, because that's what was fun. And I didn't have a Jewish upbringing, so I didn't have that reinforcement rechecking me. Right. I got into a big car accident, as you know. I almost died, went into a coma, came out. For six years I suffered, but I met got to my highest. I got straight A's in college, two different colleges, what? and that was my highlight. And then I just said, you know what, I want more. I met a girl who like overcome cancer, I had an open mind. She was smoking weed at her house, and the reason why I got into that injury was because I was very intoxicated on marijuana. And I asked her why she did it, and she said, I did it because it takes my pain away. So I said, I'm a the law so I had an open mind They tried. try I tried it and I fell back in love and very shortly after I got my license to smoke it my life fell apart again and I got institutionalized nine times in the past three years and I, my depression came back a lot of suffering and I think all of this is leading up to now because as you know I'm in Chabad around all these spiritual people, I meet you and I learn from everybody. I just recently met Howie Mandel. I learned a lot from him and everything is coming together now. And I believe this is all happening because it's all a message to me. That, you know, I didn't live a life that was very Torah oriented. But I have this clarity now of what I know is most important, which is to learn Torah. And it's always been my passion to entertain. So I'm going to practice to learn how to better entertain, to sing and to things of that nature. So, how did these, in your viewpoint, (laughs) Correlate to one another. Yeah, okay. Am I seeing it correctly? Yeah,
0: no, listen, I, you're, you're a hero. You know, I mean, to go through what you've been through and to still be um, at it is, is awesome. You know, um, I heard from Reb Shlomo, he said in the name of Rebbe Nachman, he talks about um, something called Holy Chutzpah, which is the idea that a person says to Hashem, I, I'm not going to be pushed away. I'm just going to keep on coming back. You know, and Hashem loves that. You know, a person says, I, I will not be turned away. God, you're, God, I, I know enough to know that you're the only game in town. When all is said and done, you're the only game in town. So I'm just, I'm going to keep on coming back. I'm going to keep on coming back. And that's what it is. Uh, I remember Reb Shlomo told this story that I always liked in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. He said that, um, as an illustration of this, that, that you know, the, the Balshemtov Shem Tov um, would go at dawn, you know, um, to, uh, to go to the mikveh every day. And the, um, the rivers of, you know, they, they, were, they were often ice cold, and not only just ice cold, literally frozen over. They'd have, to, they'd have to cut a hole in the ice in order to immerse themselves. And we have many, many stories of Rebbe's and, you know, I mean... Women are much more sneeze about it, so you don't hear the stories about that. But I'm sure women were breaking holes in the ice as, as, as well. And, you know, it's incredible because I don't know if you've ever been in really cold water before. I have. I remember I went to a, a mikveh in, um, in someone's backyard in Phoenix. And, I, and this has happened to me more than once, where I've been in water so cold, I felt as though I was having a heart attack while I was underwater. And I'm sure that that would be called stupidity <laughs> to, to put myself in that situation. But I'm sure that the water that these people were going in was twice as cold as the water where I felt I was going to die. So anyway, that's, that's an aside. But, um, but the story is that someone knew that the Bal Shem Tov was doing this, so they, they woke up very early and what they did was they made a fire right next to the river so that when the Baal Shem Tov came out of the freezing water that he should be able to warm himself. But they hid. You know, because, I mean, whoever did this was obviously so holy, you know, that he would do such a thing and get up and care to do such a thing and then, and then on top of that didn't want to be discovered. I mean, it's like who was this person, right? Anyway, so After some period, I don't know how long, the Baal Shem Tov said, um, you know, come out. I know you're here. Come out. I want to give you a blessing. So the person came out and he said, um, the Baal Shem Tov said, I want to bless you with one of two things. Either long life or wealth. And the person thought about it and said, I'll take both. And the Baal Shem Tov loved that and blessed them with both. <laughs> and that was called, Rabbi said, that was holy chutzpah. That's an example of holy chutzpah, you know. But I want to say something, I want to say something more about being led. Because you're talking about being led and everything like this. Here's a, an example that I've shared, but I want to give you the next step to it. That I think is very Helpful and a very good thing to have in mind in your life. I know that it's helped me a lot, and I really recommend this. It's almost like a meditation, if you will, but um, it's not something you have to sit on the floor, cross-legged, uh, doing. Just it's just a thought to have in mind. You know, when we were led through the desert, there was a cloud that sat on top of the Mishkan. That was the Holy Tabernacle, basically the, you know, it was the prototype of the Beis Migdash, of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And you could take it apart, and, and when the Jews traveled through the desert for 40 years, they, they took the Mishkan with them. And how did they know to go from place to place? So God gave us very clear instructions, and it says right in the Chumash, that when the, as long as the cloud stayed over the Mishkan, the Jews encamped at that place. When the cloud went up, they marched. Okay, And the cloud led them to the next spot. Now, if you look in the Torah where it says that, there's a lot of repetition. It's actually one of the more mysterious passages. And then I saw a commentary, I think it was the Yor not positive, I think it was, maybe it was Rabbeinu B'chaim, who explained that the reason why there's so much repetition in explaining when the cloud stayed and when the cloud moved and every variation of it, was to give the Jewish people um, praise. How? Because there were places where the Jews wanted to stay longer. And yet, when the cloud went up, they left. Now, this is like situations in our life where, hey, I like that job. Hey, I like that girl or I like that guy. And then all of a sudden, it's over in your life. And it seems you experience it as a tragedy. But if you understand that, you know what? I encamped at this place. The cloud went up. And so the Jews left a place that they liked because the cloud went up. Now, the opposite happened also. There were places where the Jews did not like it at all. That's a difficult place in your life. This is hard for you. That's hard for you. You don't have this. You don't have that. But if the cloud stayed on the Mishkan, they stayed in that place until the cloud lifted. Until Hashem said it's time for you to move on, they stayed in that place. You know, a lot of people when it when life becomes uncomfortable for them, they they'll, they'll abuse drugs. They'll they'll do all sorts of things, and if you ask them why, you often hear the same answer: to escape. I want to escape. That's like you're encamped at the same place and the cloud's not moving. See around. <laughs> where are you going? I am escaping. That's where I'm going. Right? but But to the praise of the Jewish people who gave us strength for all time, by the way. When the cloud stayed there, we stayed there until the cloud left. Because that meant whatever we had to fix or whatever sparks that we had to uplift there hadn't been fully uplifted yet. And if you say, well, wait a second, I've examined my life. Whatever I can do, I've already done. So why isn't the cloud going up? Well, it could be because these sparks that need to be uplifted haven't been revealed yet. In other words, it's, you, you, you might not be going crazy. You may have a list. You know, I've done what they call a a cheshbon nefesh. I've done a a a a, a spiritual audit of all my activities, and there is no reason why I should be in this place right now in my life. Whatever I need to fix, I fixed. Well, it could be, could be, that what needs to be fixed has not been revealed to you yet. So you aren't going crazy. To the extent that you need to fix things, you are current, but you have to be in that spot to re- to fix something that hasn't been revealed to you that you need to fix still. Okay. So, so all of this is actually things we've learned already, but now I want to take it a step further. Okay. So let's say I'm in a spot that I like. Life's going good for me right now. And then all of a sudden, the cloud goes up <laughs> and it's like, uh-oh, this was, this was pretty good. You know, I, I was kind of enjoying this. And now all of a sudden, that chapter is over. The cloud lifted. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, you can say, well, clearly it's Hashem's will. And now, this is over in my life. As much as I was enjoying it, this is over in my life. And that's what it is. Okay, so now I'm giving you the next step. The next step is, let's go back into the Chumash. What does it say? The cloud lifted, and then it went before the Jewish people, leading them to the next place. In other words, just because that chapter ended, it, and just because you liked it, And just because you didn't want it to end, it doesn't mean v'shalom a million billion times that God has now abandoned you. God is now actively leading you to the next place. And that's what I want you to have in mind. The idea that you're being led by the cloud to the next place. That's Hashem escorting you to the next place very, very, very important, because when we get to um, certain chapter endings in our life, if someone experiences, God forbid, the, 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 the loss of a loved one, we feel, we associate that with spiritual abandonment from God. We go, okay, God is through with me for whatever reason. He's angry at me. I, I, who knows what I did, or I know what I did, or whatever it is. But it's not the case. God is leading you to the next place. The cloud went before the Jewish people to the next place. So I say that to you, that throughout everything you've been and you've gone through and everything like that, just know that you're being led to the next place. Okay? And that's important. Okay. Yeah. Anyone else have a question? and Yeah? Don't be shy. Go ahead. I don't have any questions. Just yeah. kind of uh,
1: so-called in Hebrew, Yara, yeah, right, yeah. in the fact that the mushroom <laughs> was uh, spoken so-called to God when he was at the, the age of eight. Eighty, you yeah. don't know that eight is symbol of infinity.
0: Yeah.
1: Kind of.
0: Yeah. And this was 80. Remember, eight zero. But, you know, in the parka 80 is eight. So, yeah, it mm-hmm. has a... It has, yeah, eight times ten, all the more so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He graduated to Lamala Minateva, as they say, above nature. Can you speak a little bit on the um, the idea that righteousness is
1: about falling down and jumping back up?
0: Yeah. And what's really involved there? Yeah, yes. So so we have a, a teaching from Shlomo HaMelech. From King Solomon, who says that the righteous person falls down seven times and gets back up. So, the classic understanding of righteousness is um, someone who never makes a mistake. And here you see, wow, Shlomo Melech, the wisest of men, is giving us a very surprising definition of righteousness. It's not someone who never makes a mistake. In fact, he says in another place, there's no such thing as a person who doesn't make a mistake. Which is very interesting because we have the concept of the tzaddik who doesn't have a Sahara who doesn't make a mistake. So this seems to, I mean, I'm sure very smart people can explain the tension between those two ideas. But this seems to say that everyone is human, you know, that, that we all make mistakes, you know, even at the highest level. Look, Moshe Rabbeinu hit the rock instead of speaking to it. So, so so, so, therefore, the definition of righteousness changes. It's not about not making a mistake. It's about one's determination to stay with the program, so to speak, and to rededicate themselves constantly to doing the right thing. That that's the mark of righteousness. You know... um I'll just say an aside, little off the topic, but it's a, it's a thought relating mm-hmm. to the Parsha that i that I just kind of got excited about i don't know if this is my thought or if I heard it I guess it doesn't matter so so it says, don't give a gift to the righteous person it it will blind the eyes of the righteous, and they're talking about a, a situation where um a judge has to adjudicate a case right, and he's got two. Two people before him and one of them gives this righteous, the Torah uses the word righteous, gives this righteous man a gift. And, um, and it says it's going to corrupt the righteous. So I was trying, I was thinking about that. It seems kind of strange to me because if this person is really righteous and you give him a gift, should, why should that corrupt him? In fact, I heard a humorous story uh, in the name of uh, Judge Roy Bean, right, from my friend Ed. He was a one of these uh, judges in the wild, wild west, okay, and um, back in, you know, the, the days of the American frontier, and apparently, you know, he's a legendary character, and um, anyway, someone, uh, Judge Roy Bean was about to judge a case and one of the, uh, one of the uh, litigants gave him a, a, a gift of $10,000. I think it was a big railroad company. And, and uh, you know, the, the the other person who, who felt as though he was right and he was being robbed blind now, won by the big railroad company and now by the criminal justice system, was, you know, beside himself. And he said... I, you know, you, you've taken a gift of $10,000 that's completely unjust. And, he, and George Roy Bean is, is, is reported to have said back to him, you know what, you're right. We're going to fix this. You know how we can fix it? You also give me a gift of $10,000. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, my question is, if the person is righteous and they receive a gift, and the Torah, remember, the Torah is calling them righteous. Shouldn't they remain righteous since they're called righteous? Shouldn't they have the ability to set aside the gift that they've been able to receive and to be able to judge the case righteously? So I was thinking about this because I was troubled by this. And, um, and I think here's, here's the answer I'd like to suggest. We have a concept, and it's considered one of the most fundamental concepts in the entire Torah. In Hebrew, it's called Hakoras hatov, which means gratitude. This is absolutely the foundation, and a lot of people believe that this is the foundation for happiness in life, by the way, is gratitude. In other words, if you're in the mode of thanking God for what you have, you're not going to be in a place where you're constantly feeling things are missing, things are missing, I don't have, I don't have, I'm angry, I'm angry, God, why are you doing this to me? If you're aware of what you do have, then that drives your consciousness, and all of a sudden you become a a much happier person. A much happier person. Um, I know in my own life, a lot of times when I get really stressed out, and it's very hard for me to remember to do this because I'm so in a place of lacking that I, I don't remember to do this, but in the instances where I do do this, it always helps me I start thanking God for everything that I have and then I'm, it's almost like I've taken medicine I'm instantly better. It's amazing how this works. It's amazing how this works. We have to find a better word than gratitude. Gratitude really sounds like an old fuddy-duddy word. I don't like the way it rings. There's something very moralistic and preachy and almost, I don't know, that's my own personal take. We've got to find a another word for this to express this idea. But anyway, we say, we call it Hakora Satov in in. It's interesting. It's called recon- in, in, in Hebrew. I think a, a more accurate translation is recognition of the good. You know. Appreciation. So, yeah, appreciation. Yeah, appreciation. all these things. Thankfulness. Thank- thankfulness. Yeah, these are all these are all good things. So. So it's this is such a fundamental mida, character trait, thankfulness. Then anyone who's truly righteous is going to have it quite a bit in themselves. Ah, now let's revisit the case. A judge receives a gift. What is the proper response to a gift if you're righteous? Thankfulness. So now, it's not that because the, the judge is corrupt that he's going to favor the person who gave him a gift. It's that he will naturally be indebted since he 's a refined spiritual person, he will naturally have a debt of thanks automatically have a debt of thanks to the to the person now that he has a debt to the other person he is absolutely it 's impossible for him to judge the two clients justly one he owes something to the other he doesn't owe something to so the so the torah says you you, you can 't be the the person to judge. Because of your righteousness. Not because the gift changed you and corrected you and became you unrighteous. It's because you're righteous you have a debt of thanks. It's because of your righteousness you can't judge the case anymore. Okay. but let's get back to your point. The idea of what a righteous person falls. So we also had this idea that until a person makes a mistake in something, this is in Gomorrah Gittin 43a, until a person makes a mistake in something, they don't fully understand what this thing is. So life is this evolving thing. There's a lot of trial and error in life. And it's not simple. You know, we, we're living in this bizarre time where a lot of the blessings that we've received have warped our understanding of what life is all about. You know, not that, oh, I miss the good old days with the Black Plague and no toilets, you know what I mean? I'm not not saying that. But historically, there was a recognition of really that life is, in fact, you know, quite challenging. And now that we have, like, spray deodorants and, you know, the Internet and, you know, penicillin, and the birth control pill. And all sorts of things. Everything is just so easy. Or better put, it's not that things are so easy. But there is this um, there's this um, illusion of easiness. This illusion of easiness. Such that when we encounter the reality of life, if it seems hard to us, Instead of saying, wow, this is life, but it's okay, but it's good, and I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and I'm going to rededicate myself. Maybe I'll fall seven times, but I'm going to rededicate myself. All of a sudden we go, am I crazy? Or is, why is God picking on me? Because it seems every time I turn on the TV or look at the billboard or watch a movie or whatever, everything is so easy. You know, one of the things that I, I've been struck by is how, how movies really warp our, 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 our sense of reality in so many different ways. But, but one thing that I've focused on is, is how things take a long time in life. They take a long time. And in the movies, they take a short time. And I think that's one of the most corrupting things about the sense of reality that's been sold to us, you know, you, you, you have the um, in the in the movie you have the um, the getting dressed montage for the for the big date, right? Oh, I'm trying on this outfit. Then cut. Now I'm on this outfit in front of the movie, right? And they're always playing, you know, "Walking on Sunshine" by Katrina and the Waves, right, in the background. You know, that's always the you know the work montage song. You know. And now I'm in this outfit. And now this is the outfit, right? And then cut to I'm at dinner, right? What about, you know, all the in betweens, waiting for the elevator, you know, ripping your pantyhose on the way out, having to go back, and you now that's a nightmare. Trying to get a cab and it's raining, you can't get a cab. You know, I mean, all of the all the in between steps of actually getting to the date. You know, and then, in real life, we all know that date was a disaster anyway, <laughs> you know we have to wait for the twentieth date after that. so you see someone shared me with me with me one more what one one time, and uh. All right, let me, let me backtrack, because this is a bigger thought. Last week, I shared with you something I think very significant. It was very significant for me. And I want to build on it right now. We'll just telescope <laughs> very quickly. We said that there's a Pesach in the Torah which says that you can't test God. And we said, what does it mean to test God? So according to the Ramban, what it means is, don't say to God, if you don't do this for me, then I don't have any obligation to serve you anymore. Don't do that. And I've noticed in different groups that I've said this to, almost in every group, someone has said, but everyone does that. And I've been so struck that this was such a core issue. And that's why I feel like very energized by this idea, you know, because I think it's addressing a real spiritual need right now that people don't understand that they're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to say, God, if you don't do this miracle for me, I don't have any obligation to serve you anymore. That's completely no good to put terms on one's relationship with God, because God runs the world. God, God's keeping us alive. God's doing everything. So it's not... The way I put it last week, if you remember, is you can't fire God, right? Okay so so you see, the way it works is Reb, Reb Noach, Ol Sholem, um, the blessed former um, founder and director of A Torah. Apparently, I never heard him say this personally, but with with his students, he he often used this phrase, you have to know what you know. Know what you know. And I tried to understand what that means. It sounds good, but what is he saying exactly? Know what you know. You see, it's one thing to to hear a new piece of information. But it just kind of gets filed as information, or maybe it gets forgotten. Know what you know means that if you know it, and you agree with it, then that's got to be part of your actual vision of the world. To the point where you have to operate with that as a ground rule. Like for instance, if I tell you, don't run in front of a speeding car, you really know that. How do I know that you really know that? How do you know that you really know that? Because none of us run in front of speeding cars. We have made that part of our understanding, our basic understanding of life. So it is with these teachings. They have to be as clear to you and as, as, as ingrained and as natural to you as don't run in front of a speeding car. If it's not that, then you don't know what you know. Now this is assuming, by the way, that you agree with it, if you agree with it, okay? So many of us we know something, or we say we know it, but we, it hasn't really become an operative foundation in our life, which means one of two things. It means one of two things. You don't really know it, meaning to say you don't really agree with it, meaning to say you still have a lot of questions about it, even though part of you have said, well, I know it. If that's the case, then we don't even get to the second part of know what you know we're still on the first part. Do you even know it? On the superficial level. If it's not part of your vision of life that you're actually using it to inform your behavior on a daily basis, you've got a lot more questions to ask about the concept. Because you don't know it yet. Because if you're not living it, then you don't know it yet. And even if it's sort of informing your life, but just kind of informing your life, you've got more questions and you've got to recognize that you've got more questions and you've got to figure out what they are and you've got to write them down and you've got to ask people about them. And you know what? If someone doesn't give you a good answer, that doesn't mean, well, I thought there was an answer. Clearly there's no answer, so why am I holding on to this? Ask someone else. And if they haven't got an answer, ask someone else. You know, holy chutzpah. Be 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 righteous. Be righteous. Rededicate yourself. Get those answers. Once you've got the answer, and you're say, you know what? That's what I thought. It is what I thought, and I've sort of been assuming it, and it didn't make sense to me, But now I really got it. Now you got to live it. Now you got to live it. Okay. Now you do it in parts. Doesn't mean like the next day you change your life over. You do it in parts, and you you make the plan make sense to you, so that. So that it's comfortable and, and, and you're realistic about what your, what your abilities are. Okay? But the point is like this. We know, and this is what I'm getting to, we know there's a next world. We know that there's a soul. We know that the soul ascends after 120. We should all live long. And that there's a world of souls. And that one receives all of the reward for all of their actions in this world. We know that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and a perfection of the world. Where entire, the entire reality of the world is going to transform. And there's going to be eternal life. And it's going to be spiritual. And there are going to be no obstacles to serving God. God had in mind at the beginning of creating the world, the perfected world. We're on the road to the perfected world. It's coming. It's absolutely coming. God should bless us that we should see it in our own lives. But you know what? If we don't, we're still going to take part in it. And you know what? While we're waiting for it, down here, we're going to be in Olamabad, Gan Eden, in the world of souls above. So, you know, it's not going to be a waiting room at the dentist with three-year-old copies of people. You know? <laughs> it's going to be the most blissful, like every single moment is more blissed out than the previous moment. That's what Olama buys. Okay? Your mind is being constantly blown. Okay? That's the waiting room. Then comes the resurrection of the dead where this world transforms into this exalted reality. That's where we're heading. That's our destiny. That's going to happen. Okay. So now, there are different categories of people. There's the category of people who say, well, maybe. Okay, so if you're in the maybe category, then you've got to learn more to realize that that's the truth, that that's what's going to happen. Now, if you go, yeah, I I believe it. I don't really think about it ever, but I believe it. Then you've got to say, Well, if that's what's going to happen, and I really believe that's what's going to happen, then how am I living my life right now? Because all of a sudden, little things aren't going to be big things in your life anymore. Little things are going to be like, well, I really would have preferred that to happen. But you know what? I'm involved in this massive cosmic scenario right now. I mean... I you know what? I really wish that you would have given me that job, it would have been very nice. But I got bigger fish to fry. (laughs) I'm moving on. The cloud is taking me to the next place. Wherever it is, it's taking me to the next place. And I know where that cloud eventually ends up in this perfected world. So what does it mean? By the way, I've been answering your question. I never stopped answering your question. What What does it mean that the what 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 is a righteous person? A righteous person is someone who knows what they know, who knows the truth, and is dedicated to that and has their mind on that. They say that a dedicated person, right? That there's another category of person where the next world is even realer to them than this world. Now Because if that's eternal, and this life is temporary, then shouldn't I be investing in that? Shouldn't that be my focus? Now, unfortunately, it's unfortunate that we have to throw this on as a PS, but we do. Unfortunately, we're living in a world today where there are people who love death and hate life. And who blow themselves up with innocent people in pizza parlors and things like that. Because they're running to get to their eternal reward which they know exists. So that's a complete perversion of what I'm talking about. It's an utter, utter, utter perversion of what I'm talking about. And you know, it's so unfortunate, but it shows you that at every level of righteousness, remember, even Moshe at his exalted level, there was a spiritual counterpart in Bilam who was completely corrupt. You would think at the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, there only exists righteousness. And yet you see, free choice continues even to the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the highest, holiest person we've ever had. Even at the highest, holiest level, there's a Bilam. So, Even at the highest, holiest level, there is a next world. It's perfect. How do I get there? I murder women and children. What? It exists. You all know it. It doesn't mean that therefore that this life is nothing because I'm focused on that life. This life is your whole opportunity, your whole proving ground for the ultimate reality. This whole life in its temporariness, in its relative lessness, in its brokenness, it's like this is our opportunity to have our tool belts on, to run around fixing, smiling, hallowing. That, that's what it is. Not killing Chaz V'sholem. Or not, not caring Chaz The opposite. You know, I, we'll finish up right now Tell you something, I heard it from Gedaliah uh, Gurfein many, many years ago. I always loved it. There was a game called Supermarket Sweep. I don't know if it's still around. I actually never really saw an episode, but I, I always loved this idea. Apparently, the winner got to take their shopping cart and run around the supermarket, and they had one minute to put everything from the shelves into their shopping cart. And I guess they had to get to the checkout counter within the minute, right? Otherwise, they didn't. They didn't win. So, that's our life. That's life in this world. You know, we have basically a minute, you know. I mean, I'll tell you something. I'm 46 right now. And one of the things that I've been humbled by, absolutely humbled by, is that I've seen that the older you get, the faster life goes. And I've heard this as an idea from people but until I experienced it, I, I never realized the full implications, you know? I mean, life goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And a lot of us think that, well, I have so many years in front of me. So anything that I need to take care of, yeah, one of these days I'm going to start keeping Shabbos, whatever it is. Ah, I've got so many years in front of me. What do I have to bother about these things right now? But you know something? Life goes very, 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 fast. And a person has to decide at a certain point, who do they want to be? Who do they want to be? And then ask themselves the famous questions of Hillel in Imperke Avos. If not me, who? And if not now, when?